0: If you've got your Bibles, and I hope that you do, please turn to Romans chapter 9 as we continue our study in this incredible letter of Paul's. As we seek to unpack some more challenging stuff this morning. Since it's been a couple of weeks, let me bring us up to speed on where we are in this chapter. In the first five verses, Paul expresses deep sadness and grief over the lost condition of his fellow kinsmen his fellow Israelites, who are, in large measure, the vast majority of them in his day, lost and apart from God because of their rejection of Jesus as the Messiah. But that sadness presented a crisis because Paul says to the Israelites, God gave promises, and God gave the covenants, and God gave his word that they would be his people. And so what has happened? Has God's word failed? Has his... Promises failed? And Paul answers in the next few verses, verses 6 through 13, in no uncertain terms, no. God's word and God's promises haven't failed because God gave his promises and his covenants to spiritual Israel, a a, a real spiritual Israel within the larger physical Israel and those promises and those covenants because they're given to spiritual Israel are still intact. And he gave a couple of Old, Old Testament examples. He said, I, I chose Isaac over Ishmael and I chose Jacob over Esau. And those were examples of spiritual Israel being chosen by God according to his unconditional election. Then there was a second objection in verse 14, and that objection was, is God fair in doing that? Is there any, any injustice in God in so choosing in that way? And Paul said, by no means. And then he gave us examples of God showing mercy according to his sovereign grace to the Israelites when they rebelled against God and made a golden calf out of their jewelry when they were at the base of Mount Sinai. And God showed mercy to them according to his sovereign grace. Then he also told of how he hardened Pharaoh's heart in the Exodus story, and how both of those, both God's showing mercy and his showing uh, or hardening Pharaoh's heart were both an example of him doing so in order to display his power and glory and grace. And so Paul says he's just in that. He's fair and right in doing that. Now in this morning's text, beginning in verse 19, Paul addresses now a third objection. So follow along in your copy of the scriptures, beginning in verse 19, and we're gonna read down through verse 23. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God. Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another vessel for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory let's pray god we thank you for just the privilege of being in your presence this morning with your people we thank you for the provision of this place and this time And this opportunity to give you glory. To honor you and to worship you. And we we do so now as we turn to your word. Father, we know that we don't bring meaning to this text. The text reveals meaning to us. And so we are dependent on your Holy Spirit to reveal truth to us. So God, we pray that you do that this morning. God, that you would speak through your word. And give us understanding but not just so that we will have clarity on a very troubling piece of doctrine. It's not the point of this, Lord, we know. But Lord, so that we might be transformed. We might seek to understand you and your ways better so that we would glorify you more with our lives. So Lord, we just lay ourselves before you this morning and ask whatever it is that you would do in us and through us, through your word this morning, we ask that you would do just that. And we pray this in faith. In Jesus' name, amen. So as we said, there was a couple of objections already in chapter nine that Paul has been addressing in kind of this diatribe style that he uses. He's used this this style Often in this letter, as he kind of has a debate with himself, there's this fictitious objector out there that is raising objections, and then Paul is addressing them one after the other. This is the third that we find in this chapter. In, in verse 6, the objection was, has the word of God failed? And of course, as we read, Paul says, no, it hasn't. In verse 14, is God fair in this? Is there any injustice in God in unconditional election? And he said, by no means, there is not. So now in verse 19, Paul addresses this third objection. And the third objection is listed in verse 19, and He says this, You will say to me then, why does he, the he pronoun meaning God, why does God still find fault? For who can resist his will? That's the objection. Why does, why does God still find fault with us? Because who can resist his will? In other words, how can God judge Pharaoh for having a hard heart when it is God who hardens Pharaoh's heart? It's a fair question, right? Paul had just finished using the example of God hardening Pharaoh's heart in the Exodus story to teach about how God will have mercy on whomever he wills and he will, ha- he will harden whomever he wills. And in explaining that, Paul even gave us God's purpose in hardening Pharaoh's heart. From verse 17 of chapter 9, which was a direct quote from Exodus 9, he said, For this purpose I, the Lord, have raised you up, Pharaoh. I've raised you up. Why? So that I might show my power in you and that my name, the name of Yahweh, might be proclaimed in all the earth. So now in in direct response, To Paul explaining that, this objection in verse 19 seemed to be very reasonable. It makes sense why Paul would bring this up. How can God judge Pharaoh for having a hard heart when it is God who hardened Pharaoh's heart? But this isn't just a question for Pharaoh. It's a question for all of us. It's a question that we must all wrestle with. The crux of this objection for each of us is this, How can God find fault with us? That is, how can God hold us accountable and responsible for our actions and our sin and our rebellion and even our unbelief if he is the one who hardens our heart? And and if it is his will that that we sin and rebel so that he might show his power in us and that he might... His, his name might be proclaimed in all of the earth. If, if that is, is, is his will for our lives, that he might be glorified through us, that his name might be proclaimed through our sinfulness and rebellion and his subsequent judgment of us for our sinfulness and rebellion. If that is our his will for our lives, then that's what's gonna happen. Because he, he says here, who can resist his will? And if that is God's will for our lives, then that is what is going to happen. So. How then can God hold us accountable? How can he hold us responsible for this? By the way, if there was such a thing as free will after the fall, this would have been a great opportunity for Paul to bring that up. That would have been a great answer to the objection. That would have handled things perfectly. Hey, it's unfair of God to find fault with mankind. It's unfair of God To hold us accountable for violating his will because nobody can resist his will. But Paul then could have said, ah, but we can. We can resist his will because we've got our own free will. But he doesn't say that. In fact, he agrees with the objector. Nobody can resist his will. And so if all this is true, how then can God find fault with us? How can he still hold us accountable for sin and rebellion because nobody can resist his will? It's a great question. It's an important question. Now, part of the answer to this question comes from the passage that we looked at last time we were in Romans 9, in verses 14 through 18. Because we noted at that time that God does not harden the heart of an innocent Pharaoh, Pharaoh was already a sinner. Pharaoh was already an enemy of God. He was already standing under the righteous condemnation of a holy God, as we all are unless God graciously saves us through the gospel. So it was also with Jacob and Esau, as we read about them in verses 12 and 13. Because it wasn't as if Jacob and Esau were these morally neutral beings, and then God just decided to make one of them uh, he, he decided to set his saving love on one of them and not the other, as if he, he decided to make one of them morally clean and the other one morally reprobate. Instead, they were both morally corrupt. They were hopeless. They were helpless. And, and God chose to set his saving love on one, which is Jacob, and he chose not to set his saving love on the other, which is Esau. Esau. And because he set his saving love on Jacob, Jacob was the child of the promise. He was one of God's children. And because he sovereignly chose not to set his saving love on Esau, Esau was not one of the children of the promise. He was not one of God's children. And so God gave Esau over to his sin and wickedness. same was true for Pharaoh. God didn't harden the heart of an innocent Pharaoh. He hardened the heart of a man who, like Isaac, like Jacob, like Moses, like you and I, was morally corrupt, had a morally corrupt heart, had a dead spirit, as we just read from Ephesians 2. A man who, because of the sinful nature that he inherited from Adam and because of his own sin and his own rebellion and his own unbelief, deserved only eternal judgment from God. God took that man... And he sovereignly chose not to to graciously rescue him from himself. Instead, God chose to harden him. So that, back to the purpose statement from verse 11, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, or as Paul put it in verse 17, that he might show his power in Pharaoh and that he and that his name, the Lord, Yahweh, might be proclaimed in all the earth. The same is true for you and I. The same is true for us. God doesn't send any innocent people to hell. Only guilty ones. Only those who rightly deserve judgment for their sin and rebellion and unbelief. And that's all of us. Because we're all guilty and we're all deserving of that judgment from a holy God. And so again, as we said before, the miracle is not that he saves some and not others. The miracle is that he saves any at all. And so if we're looking for an answer to the objection, why does he still find fault with us? It is because man is accountable for his sin and rebellion and unbelief. Man is responsible and accountable for that. And God's hardening of some does not remove or diminish man's accountability in the least. Now some will further object that, hey, God shouldn't hold us accountable because all we did is inherit the sin nature from Adam. This goes all the way back to Romans 5. We did inherit a sin nature from Adam. But not just his sin nature, we inherited the guilt of his sin. Adam as our federal head Acting in our place as the head of man, he sinned against God. And so we inherited not just the general propensity to to sin, we inherited the very guilt of Adam as if we sinned in his sin. Go back to Romans 5 and unpack that. And we're like, how is that fair? How can we be held responsible, not only for Adam's sin, but for any sin for that matter, if we're doomed from the very start to only be sinners. And church, with that, we find ourselves right smack dab in the middle of the tension between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility, right in the middle of it. And being in that place, we would be well served to heed the caution of many scholars who remind us that God's word does not resolve that tension. God's word unequivocally affirms that God is sovereign in everything, including salvation, but man is responsible for his sin, and he is responsible for responding to the gospel in faith. And God's word never seeks to adequately and logically resolve those two. Listen to this from Douglas Moo, who in in many folks estimation mine included has written one of the greatest modern commentaries on the book of Romans he says this paul never offers here or anywhere else a logical solution to the tension between divine sovereignty and human responsibility paul is content to hold the truths of god's absolute sovereignty in both election and hardening and of full human responsibility without reconciling them. And he closes with, we would do well to emulate his approach. And, and I, agree, I agree with, with that approach. We, we should steer clear of trying to resolve the tension that God's word doesn't resolve. Instead, we are to hold to both divine sovereignty and human responsibility, hold them in tension as much as Scripture does. Now, if I'm going to elevate one or the other, I'm going to be tempted to elevate God's sovereignty over man's responsibility because as I unpack Paul's subsequent verses here as we'll walk through, it seems as though Paul is doing that as well. So how does Paul answer this objection? So far, we've just talked about what we've said last time in answering this objection. Can God still find fault with us? But how does he answer it now? Really, the doctrinal answer came from verses 14 through 18. Now, how does he handle this objection in verses 19 through 23? How can God still find fault? He answers it with three rhetorical questions in in, in verses 20 and 21. Then he follows that up with a kind of a concluding conditional statement in verses 22 and 23. So let's look at these first, first, these three rhetorical questions. The first is found in the beginning of verse 20. How can God still find fault? Here's here's a rhetorical question in response to that. Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? This is part of Elihu's counsel to Job in Job chapter 33. Elihu's one of the friends of Job that provides some good counsel as opposed to the other friends who provide some counsel that's not so good. And as Job is... Is beginning to question why God has done this and question God's fairness and all of that, all that He has experienced. Elihu says this to him in verse 12 of chapter 33 of Job Behold, in this you are not right. In, In your questioning of God's fairness and what He has done and His right to do so, in this you are not right. He says, I will answer you for God is greater than man. Why do you contend against him, saying he will answer none of man's words? So Paul echoes this same sentiment in Romans 9 verse 20. Who are you, O man, to contend with God, to answer back to God? The, The phrase answer back is more than just answer. It's more than just answering God. It's answering him back. And that, and that word carries with it the connotation in the Greek of contradiction. Who are you, O oh man, to talk back to God? To contradict him? to stand in judgment of God? And the way Paul words this question helps us with the assumed answer. He calls the objector here, "O oh man. Who are you, O oh man?" It, it, it's like he says, "Little man, oh, oh you, little, little man." are you to question God? And so Paul is contrasting here the smallness of man against the backdrop of the hugeness of God. In all three of these rhetorical questions, Paul is saying the same thing, but with greater specificity and with greater emphasis. So here he's contrasting the, the smallness of man with the hugeness of God. So part of the answer to the objection that God must be unfair or unkind or unjust to hold man accountable for sin and rebellion when he is the one who hardens us, part of the answer to to that objection is that we are small and finite and he is the huge, infinite sovereign. Sovereign. He is Yahweh. He is the great I am. Who are we to sit in judgment of him? Small, finite man does not have the right to sit in judgment of the infinite divine. It is the other way around. He sits in judgment of us. He doesn't answer to us. We answer to him. And so if we think God is unfair and having mercy on whomever he wills and having hardened whomever, whomever he wills, if we have a problem with it, it's our problem, not God's. We don't get to decide what is fair and right and just for God. Who are we to answer back to God? Second rhetorical question at the end of verse 20. Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? So he's saying the same thing in this rhetorical question, but he's adding a new element. And that element is that God is creator and we are the creation. And the created has no say in how it is created. The creator doesn't need to consult with the created when the created wants to know how or why or for what reason it is created. And Paul begins to use this metaphor here of a potter and the clay and he's going to continue with that metaphor in the next few verses. And he says, will what is molded say to its molder why have you made me like this? And when, and when we think of that in terms of the potter and the clay, it's kind of comical, isn't it? To, to, think, of, to think of that analogy. That, that's like a clay, clay pot looking up to the potter and saying, hey, why did you make me a clay pot? I wanted to be a clay pitcher. No no, no fair. I, I want to be a pitcher. No, no fair. Why have you made me thus? Silly, right? Ridiculous. Well, so are we when we question why God elects some to salvation but not others. Will what is molded question the molder and his right to make us how he desires. He owes us nothing. We have sinned against him. We have rebelled against him. And we would question why he chooses to save one and not the other. Again, like the clay pot wanting to be like the clay pitcher. It's silly and ridiculous and arrogant of us. Third rhetorical question that Paul gives here. As he continues with his potter and the clay metaphor in verse 21. Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? And again, the assumed answer of this rhetorical question is, of course he does. Of course he has that right. He has all the right in the world to make whatever he wants to out of the clay. After all, it's his clay. It belongs to him. He can make out of the clay whatever he wants to make out of the clay. He has all of the right and the authority to do so. The metaphor of the potter and the clay is one that's used many times in the Old Testament. It's one of the favorite metaphors of the prophet Isaiah. He uses it all over the place. Isaiah 29, chapter 41, chapter 45. In chapter 6, 64, verse eight, he says, but now, O Lord, you are our father, we are the clay, you are the potter, we are all the work of your hand. But it's, it's Jeremiah's use of this potter with the clay metaphor that Paul seems to rely on most heavily here in Romans 9. I want you to just listen to Jeremiah's use of this analogy as God leads him to go watch a potter as he makes clay vessels. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord is this, Arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I will let you hear my words. So I went down to the potter's house, and there he was working at his wheel, and the vessel he was making of clay was spoiled in the potter's hand, and he reworked it into another vessel as it seemed good to the potter to do. Then the word of the Lord came to me, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter has done, declares the Lord? Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. So God leads Jeremiah to go down to the potter's house and watch him make some stuff. And as he does so, The potter makes this vessel and it spoils, which means it doesn't work the way the potter had intended. So what does the potter do? He reworks it. He fashions it into something else, but the key phrase here is he does this as it seemed good to the potter to do. In other words, it was according to the potter's will, according to his own good pleasure, and then Jeremiah says, it was then that the, the word of the Lord came to me. This is why he sent me to the potter's house. Because then the Lord said to me at that point, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as the potter as this potter has done? Declares the Lord. Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. So the lesson for Jeremiah in that setting was that God had the right and the authority to do with Israel however he pleased. Now, that doesn't mean that when Paul uses this same metaphor in Romans 9, that he's talking about nations and such, as God did with the analogy in Jeremiah. We can't take the entire lesson of Jeremiah 18 and superimpose it onto Romans chapter nine, because in Romans chapter nine, he's clearly dealing with individuals and their eternal destinies, not nations. But there is a transferable concept between these two passages that is undeniable with this metaphor. And that is that God has the right and the authority to make out of the same lump of clay, which is what we're made of, right? Just like Adam, we're formed from the ground, we're formed out of clay, God has the right to make out of the same lump of clay, as he says, some for honorable use and some for dishonorable use. So it's not that there is a good lump of clay and out of that good lump he makes honorable vessels and that there is a bad lump of clay and he makes dishonorable vessels out of that. No, he says both the honorable vessels and the dishonorable vessels are made out of the same lump of clay like Jacob and Esau, from verses 11 through 13. He said there, Though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad. And we could say parenthetically because they were out of the same lump of clay, right? They were twins in the womb. Before they had born, before they had done anything good or bad. Paul goes on, In order that God's purpose and election might continue, Not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger, as it is is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. Both the honorable vessels and the dishonorable vessels were both made out of the same lump of clay. And the potter, Paul says, has the right to do this according to his good pleasure. So we've got these three rhetorical questions that Paul uses in responding to this, to this objection, how can he still find fault with us? And Paul uses these rhetorical questions to contrast the smallness and the creatureliness of man with the hugeness and authority and power of our sovereign creator. And then Paul brings this analogy of the potter and the clay to a conclusion in verses 22 and 23. Look at those verses. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Now, I used to think that this is referring to a hypothetical scenario, and I used to think that because of the words, what if, at the beginning of verse 22. What if God, desiring to show his wrath, the what if kind of signals a hypothetical, right? What if? But the problem is, in the Greek, there is no what if. There's just an if. The English translators have have added that to help this Makes sense to us. If anything, there's the word but there. But if. So, so it's really the beginning of a conditional statement. It's an it's a if-then statement. The problem is there's no then either. There, there, there's just the if conditional statement. If God, desiring to show his wrath and so on, but there's no then that follows that up, that resolves the conditional statement. So, so what are we dealing with here? Is this a hypothetical situation or a conditional clause? We don't know. Maybe it's both, maybe it's a hypothetical, conditional clause, whatever that is. The grammar just reads, but if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. Now what does all of that mean? There's a lot there. So we begin with God's desire. God desiring to show his wrath. So the word desire there is the normal word in the Greek for will or choosing. So this is God willing to show something, willing to do something, choosing, desiring to do something. To do what? To show his wrath and to make known his power. That's what God is desiring to do, to Show his wrath and make known his power. Now, this this sounds very similar to what Paul said in verse 17 when he was explaining what God was doing in hardening Pharaoh's heart. We we mentioned verse 17 before. It was a quote from Exodus 9. For the scriptures say to, to, to to Pharaoh, for this purpose I have raised you up, Pharaoh. What was the purpose? That I might show my power in you And that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So again, we see that God is all about the display of his divine nature, his power, his glory, his justice, his love, his grace, all of that. And all of the display of God's divine nature and character is what is meant by glorifying God. And so glorifying God is not just the chief end of man, it is the chief end of God. It's what he's about. And so God, desiring to do this, desiring to show his wrath and make known his power, he has done what? What what has he done in an effort to show his wrath and make known his power? He has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. And we can continue with this purpose statement In verse 23, in order to make known the riches of his glory, there's the display of his glory again, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. What does all that mean? Well, for one, we've got vessels of mercy and we've got vessels of wrath, right? Vessels of wrath and vessels of mercy. And I believe that to be a reference to the elect and the non-elect, just as is the reference to the vessels made for honorable use and the vessels made for dishonorable use. I chose Isaac, not Ishmael. I chose Jacob, not Esau. So, So Isaac and Jacob are the vessels of mercy. They're examples of vessels of mercy. Not because of anything about who they are or what they did in their life or what they were going to do in their life, but simply because of God's sovereign grace alone. And as vessels of mercy, they were prepared beforehand for glory. On the other hand, we have vessels of wrath. The examples there in the previous passage were Ishmael and Esau. They are vessels of wrath. Due to nothing about them, about who they are, or what they've done, or what they were going to do in their life. But simply because of God's sovereign choice. And as vessels of wrath, they were prepared for destruction. Now what does it mean, prepared for destruction, prepared for glory? Some commentators will point out that there is a difference in the voice in those two verbs. And the verb prepared when used in reference to the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, the voice of that verb is passive. Whereas when that verb is used in reference to the vessels of mercy prepared beforehand for glory, it is in the active voice. And that may indicate to us something important. And that is that God actively prepares those whom he chooses beforehand to be vessels of mercy. Those whom he will, according to his sovereign grace, set his saving love on. That he has an active role in preparing them beforehand for glory. Whereas those who are not chosen in that that sense, they prepare themselves for that destruction because of their own sin, because of their own rebellion, because of their own unbelief. So understood in this way, God would not be the subject of their being prepared for destruction. They prepare themselves for destruction And certainly the the way that the English translators in your English copy of the Bible translates these words, it seems to indicate indicate their belief that that God had a more active role in preparing vessels of mercy than he does in preparing vessels of wrath for destruction. Verse 22, we're, we're presented with the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. There's this passive voice there. They're they're just prepared. They, They prepare themselves for destruction. Whereas in verse 23, we're presented with the vessels of mercy, which he, and the pronoun there referring to God, which God has prepared beforehand for glory. So there it's a clear active voice in the Greek that God prepares them beforehand, before the foundation of the world, for glory by sovereignly setting his saving love on them. Now, that's well and good, but even if God only passively is involved in preparing vessels of wrath for destruction, he's still not off the hook because he is sovereign over all of that, right? And at the very least, he sovereignly chooses to pass over them as he sets his saving love on those whom he has prepared in advance for glory, the vessels of mercy. So what do we learn about God in these few verses here? First of all, we must affirm that God is not the author of evil, and he doesn't cause anyone to sin. This is very clear teaching in Scripture that we cannot avoid we must affirm in the same breath as affirming God's sovereignty. James says in James 1.13, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, nor does he tempt anyone. So in affirm, affirming God's sovereignty over everything, we must in the same breath be careful not to hold God accountable for our sin and our disobedience. Man alone, we alone are responsible for our sin and our rebellion and our unbelief. We alone are responsible. We're not gonna seek to resolve those two affirmations from scripture. We're gonna hold them in tension. Second thing that we learned about God in this passage. God is showing patience to vessels of wrath. We see that in verse 22. And he, and he tells us the reason for his patience. That he's enduring them, he's patient with them, why? For the purpose of displaying his wrath and his power. Now how does that work? How does God's patience with the non-elect, those vessels of wrath, how does his patience with them display his wrath and power? It seems contradictory, right? Well, we can begin by by affirming that God is being patient with sinners today, right? He's being patient with sinners today. After the fall, God could have done a hard reboot. He he could have said, all right, I'm going to start over. Man has messed this up. I'm going to start over. I'm going to wipe them off the face of the earth and start again. But he didn't. He could do that now, but he doesn't. Why? Well, on behalf of the elect, he's being patient so that they will repent and have faith in his son Jesus Christ and be saved. That's what Paul said in Romans chapter two, verse four, when he said, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? So that's why God is patient with the elect, so that they would come to faith in Jesus by hearing the gospel and responding in faith. But, but in Romans nine twenty two. Paul's not talking about God's patience with the elect. He's talking about his patience, patience with the non-elect. And God is being patient with the non-elect today as well. But not so that they will come to repentance. Because regretfully, they won't. They desire to stay in their sin. They desire to stay in their rebellion. They desire to stay in their unbelief. And that desire of theirs will not change because according to God's sovereign will he has passed over them to set his saving love on his vessels of mercy. But God is still being patient with them. Why, why doesn't he just wipe them out? He doesn't. Not yet at least. Why is that? Here's why. So that his ultimate judgment of sin and evil and rebellion and unbelief will be that much more of a display of his wrath and his power. Think about it. Think about the Revelation account when Christ will come in glory and he will finally and ultimately and decisively defeat Satan and put down the rebellion. And pour out his wrath on the wickedness of man. That is going to be an awesome and awful display of wrath and power. And so for now, he's being patient with the vessels of wrath. Third thing that we learn about God from this passage, that is that God will make known his glory to vessels of mercy. Verse 23 He does this in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory. If God has saved you by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, his son, then he has prepared you for glory. And to you, God will make known the riches of his glory. Think about that. He will make known to you the riches of his glory. Something of which Moses only got to see a glimpse of as God hid him in the cleft of the rock. God will make known to us in full. So, in summary, kind of in conclusion to the last several weeks in these passages in Romans 9. God is sovereign in salvation. And he has unconditionally chosen whom he will save. And those whom he saves are saved due to no merit on their own part. And those whom he doesn't save are judged rightly according to their sin and rebellion and unbelief. And in both his electing and his non electing, he does both to display his power and his glory and his grace, and because he is God, and because he is sovereign, and because his purpose is to display the riches of his glory, he is just and fair and right in what he does, and who are we to sit in judgment of him and question the how and the what and the why of what he chooses to do? So how do we apply all of that? Let me me just suggest to you three points of application that I want to encourage you in your base groups this week to flesh out for what this will mean in your own life. First of all, believe. I think we are meant to accept what God's word says is true. Again, we, we we don't bring truth to this text. This text just reveals truth to us. And so... As it reveals truth, our job is to accept it. But furthermore, our job is not to seek to resolve any tension that God's word doesn't resolve. There are things here that that I believe we're meant to believe and accept. Namely, that God is sovereign in salvation. And he sovereignly sets his saving grace on some but not all. I think we're meant to believe that God is fair and just and right in how he does this. And also think that we're meant to believe and accept that man is responsible for his sin. And he's responsible for responding to the gospel in faith. But we're to hold those two truths up and affirm them to our dying breath and not seek to resolve them. Because God's word doesn't. Keep them in tension. Secondly, be grateful. If God has saved you, It is because of nothing about you. It is because of nothing that you have done. It is solely because of God's sovereign grace on your behalf. If Romans nine teaches us anything, it is that salvation is of God and according to his sovereign grace alone. You, You and I are just the clay vessels. He's the potter, we are the clay. And if we're vessels of mercy, it's due to him alone. And so we ought to be humble and grateful that he has sovereignly and graciously chosen us to be the recipients of this sovereign grace. Let us be humble and grateful recipients of that grace. Application number three, we ought to glorify God in response to this. What we've seen over and over in this passage of Romans chapter 9 is that God does all of this to display His power and His wrath and His grace and His patience and the riches of His glory. And so if the display of God's glory is at the root of all this electing and non-electing stuff, then let us, in response to all of this, glorify God. Let us be careful not to give any glory to man in salvation, All glory belongs to God. Let us be careful not to sit in judgment of God. He is the potter. We are the clay. Now this doesn't mean that we can't question God and ask him out of a genuine desire to know him and his ways. But when our questioning of him is from a posture of judgment that God is not fair if he does it this way or that way, then our questioning of him is robbing him of his glory. Our God is just and fair and right in all that he does, including all that he does and electing some to be saved, but not all. Let us bring glory to God by affirming this together. And then finally, final point of application is to proclaim the gospel to everyone. Proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ to all. Let's let's step back for a moment, and let's remember where we are in this this letter that Paul writes to the Romans. He's presented the gospel in the first several chapters. He's, He's presented the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, as our only hope for the righteousness we so desperately need in order to be justified before God. He's presented the gospel of Jesus Christ as our only hope for our sin to be atoned for and covered over. And that righteousness that we need and that atoning of our sin that we need so desperately is ours only by faith in Jesus Christ. That's what he's been presenting to us in the first seven, eight chapters. Faith in Jesus, faith to see, save, faith to sanctify, faith in Christ alone. But then in chapter 9, but there's all these unbelievers, all these Jews who who are outside the family. Does that mean God, his word is broken? Does that mean it's failed? No, it doesn't. It means that God had a remnant of Israel, a spiritual Israel within the larger Israel, and they were chosen by God to belong to him. But they being chosen by God does not nullify their need to come to faith in Christ. And so this is where Paul, after this passage, begins to make a turn in handling these objections in chapter 9 and on into chapter 10. And he begins to say... Guys, if you're, if you're really concerned about the unbelieving Jews, then go share the gospel with them like I am. Their only hope is to be justified by faith. Some of them are part of the elect, but they're only going to be justified by faith in Jesus, and they're only going to come to faith in Jesus if you proclaim the gospel to them. And so I want to close by fast-forwarding to a passage out of chapter 10 where Paul expresses this heart's desire of his. Listen to Romans 10, beginning in verse 8. The word is near you. It's in your mouth and it's in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him in whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how will they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. So church, let us affirm, Firm together what Scripture says about unconditional election. But at the end of the day, let us preach the gospel to all. Let us proclaim the gospel till our dying breath because God is still saving sinners. And His plan in doing so is to use the church, you and I, to proclaim the good news of the gospel to sinners so that he might save them. Let's pray.